Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're halfway through 2021. What's the media been up to recently? Today, I'm joined by Glenn Greenwald, former co-founder of The Intercept, now crushing it on Substack. This is episode 19. From the media's coverage of Trump and Bernie Sanders, to what Twitter does to our discourse, to Substack and Snowden, we start with the state of the media in 2021, five months into Joe Biden's presidency. So, Glenn, I want to start kind of big picture, and then we'll drill down and go to a couple different threads. But we're in the middle of 2021 right now. And it just, again, big picture. You look across the media landscape right now. Where do you assess how the media has covered the first uh, four or five, six months of the Biden administration? I think the central fact for U.S. journalism is that they really haven't come close yet to recovering from what to them was the trauma of the Trump era and all of the radical transformations and how journalism was done in response. And I think we're still very much seeing the lingering effects of that. So for me, that means things like picking a side, um, which clearly was the side of the Democratic Party against the Republican Party, pushing narratives about the Trump movement and the unique dangers that it poses without much regard to whether it's truthful or not. And I think you're seeing a lot of that residual behavior in the form of how Joe Biden is covered, which is an extremely uh, kind of soft touch, if not often hagiography and um, a much more interest in the Trump era that is out of power than the Biden administration, which is in power in part because they find the Biden administration normal and the Trump administration abnormal, but I think also because they know that there's very little interest on the part of their audience in hearing about Joe Biden. And the only hope that they have to maintain an audience is to continue to focus people on Donald Trump and and his movement, which proved so successful for four years. Right. Yeah. No, and and I think I've gotten asked this by by people mostly outside of the industry, um, but it's also a question I've tried to wrestle with here is what's the reason for that? And is it ideological? Um, Because it's not like the media has not leaned left. I mean, I worked at CNN. I worked at various places. I know that. But but at the same time, there's there's a noticeable shift in in where things have gone and and I wonder if it's ideological or if it's financial if it's a if it's a basis of the business model that we're in right now where where you've got to kind of grasp any you know hold on to the audience that you've got dig in your heels and make sure they don't go away but as slipping through your hands yeah you know I was never really a person prior to Trump who was on board with the standard right-wing view of the kind of non-Fox, non-right-wing media as being left-leaning, maybe because what that means to me is different than what it meant to the conservatives who were saying it. But, you know, I never, I don't think the media, the mainstream media ever likes either extreme, the extreme left or the extreme right. I think they're hostile to both and always have been. I think they're comfortable in the kind of establishment wings of the Republican and Democratic parties. And you've seen them over the years be very favorable to people like Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, but they also really like George Bush in the 2000 election, obviously liked him a lot better than Al Gore. And then they played a big role in lending support to a lot of the early Bush policies after 9-11, including obviously the Iraq war, which the New York Times and Jeffrey Goldberg and the New Yorker, that whole kind of liberal sector of the media helped to convince liberals to support. And then kind of throughout the war on terror, I think there was a lot of support for the Republican 
ideology. And it really began to shift with Obama, but especially with Trump. And I, that's why I say I think there's a radical transformation in the posture of the media in response to the Trump era. And I think the motives are all the things that you alluded to. One is simply the fact that I think they genuinely were disturbed by Trump because he was an aberration, at least behaviorally, from what they've been trained to expect a president ought to be. And I think they were genuinely kind of alarmed by that and disturbed by it. Because even though I don't think they're left-leaning in that kind of ideological sense, I think they're culturally liberal. You know, they kind of live in, you know, cultural coastal cities and the, the specter of Donald Trump and his movement is very culturally alienating to a lot of them. But I also think these institutions, when you immerse yourself in them, have a really potent ability to co-opt how you think. So if it's rewarding you constantly for denouncing Trump, as that milieu was doing, it was rewarding everyone who denounced Trump in increasingly extremist ways with book deals and high ratings and you know contracts and the like, at some point it becomes hard to distinguish between are you doing it for financial or other careers gain, or do you really believe it? Because I think the brain is kind of designed not to allow ourselves to believe that we're doing something dishonest for material gain. We kind of convince ourselves to believe whatever our environment demands that we believe. And I think it kind of was a mix of self-interest and then actual conviction that Donald Trump was like this existential threat. He was literally a new Hitler. (laughs) And once you start believing that, which I think a lot of them didn't do, kind of anything becomes justifiable. Yeah, that, that's it's it's an interesting one. It's actually you know you you mentioned a couple of the examples in, going back further into the '90s into the 2000s, but I want to I want to fast forward to last year uh, to 2020 because I think one of the stories that hasn't we collectively have not spent enough time on is the early 2020, the pre, it's like the pandemic came in it and it sort of knocked our memories of January, February, and early March out of the picture. But you talk about this, I, I describe it as the Acela Media, the New York and, and DC geographically biased uh, group of establishment, uh, uh, you know, uh, corporate media that that it, it exists on both sides of the, the aisle. And it, and it feels like, in my opinion, they, they have an kind of inflated sense of their own power. They feel, you know, they felt a bit of a, of a responsible for, for Trump's rise in 2015, 2016. I, I personally don't think they had that much power, but I will say, I don't think they had the power to to turn the 2020 Democratic primary away from Bernie Sanders but towards Joe Biden. Um, but they certainly were not, you know, not involved in the process there. I mean, I think about some of those early primaries, especially after Nevada, when Bernie Sanders, it looked like was going to run away with the nomination. And then you had the the galvanization with Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar dropping out behind Biden. But you also had lots of forces on MSNBC and elsewhere that really seemed to say, look, we this this could go really, really wrong if it, we're, we're very close to making Bernie Sanders our nominee. And then we're then what's going to happen? I, I want to know kind of a couple, I guess, hypotheticals. But going back to that that moment, February, March, what do you think of the way the media was covering that Democratic primary? Well, yeah, it's interesting, you know, right after I concluded my prior answer about the media not really being left-leaning, I thought of the most potent example, which I excluded, and then you very kindly brought up, which was their posture toward Bernie Sanders, not only in 2020, but also in 2016. They were completely on the side of Hillary Clinton and very hostile to Bernie Sanders. At least, you know, when he started running, they kind of took him as a kind of joke, and so they didn't really bother to dislike him. But once he really started posing a threat to win, 
you really saw the media hounds unleashed against Bernie. And then the same thing happened in 2020. I mean, MSNBC is kind of, you know, the North Star of American liberalism from the perspective of cable news. And they were almost unanimously opposed to Bernie. I mean, Chris Matthews, you might remember, notoriously compared his Nevada victory to the Nazi incursion into France during <laughs> World War II. Um, and, you know, Joy Reid was just, she brought on a like a body language expert to claim that Bernie, because he's hunched over and ye- yelling when he speaks, like every other anti-Semitic stereotype she could think of, was almost certainly lying in his exchange with Elizabeth Warren about whether he had, in fact, told her that a woman probably couldn't win. So the liberal sector of the media was opposed to Bernie in part for the reason I said, which is that they dislike any kind of ideology that's perceived as being even a little bit outside the mainstream, whereas obviously Biden and Hillary are classic establishmentarians and they far favor them. But I also think the bigger reason is that there has been this kind of trauma in center-left politics going all the way back to 1972 with George McGovern's blowout defeat at the hands of Richard Nixon, and then into the Reagan years with Reagan crushing Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale and then Michael Dukakis. And it was really Bill Clinton who taught the media how Democrats can win, which is avoiding perceptions of being left-wing and instead being corporatist and neoliberal and militaristic and centrist. And that that generational lesson has never really left the brains of, of the media, even as the undercurrents, I think, clearly have shifted, as Trump proved, right? right. Trump did everything that you know, mainstream politics teaches you can't do if you're going to win the election and win a nomination, and he still won. I remember the Washington Post you know, prize political reporter Dan Balls in 2015 predicting that Trump's attacks on John McCain would be finally the thing that would be a bridge too far for Republican <laughs> voters. And he would probably start to tumble as the Republican voters cared at all about any of that. And I think you see the same thing on in the part of the media and how they looked at Democrats. They were desperate to beat Trump in 2020. And I don't think they cared so much about the ideological question. I think they cared about the only one question, which was who was likely to beat Trump. And because of the perception that America won't elect a left-wing candidate like Bernie, I think that was more a cause of why they were so committed openly to destroying Bernie than because then supporting Biden because of ideology. I think they right. just believe Biden had a much better chance of winning. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy, I remember Joy Reid talking about the the sheer unadulterated rage and anger of the Bernie Sanders supporters. I mean, there was, it, it really, you watch some of those clips, I think this was now February, late February, there was a real fear there um, that, that, it, that Bernie was going to be their nominee. And then as you mentioned, they would be screwed because Trump might win again. So here's a hypothetical. What would Glenn Greenwald's media career be like today if Bernie Sanders had won the Democratic primary and then won the presidency in November? The very odd pre-Super Tuesday dropouts of of Klobuchar and Buttigieg uh, ultimately helped Biden seal it. But if in a scenario where where Bernie would have won the nomination and potentially, uh, I, I think very easily, could have won the presidency as well, how do you think your career uh, over the last year, year and a half would have been different? What do you think would have happened? If Bernie had won? Yeah, if he had won the primary and then if he had won potentially a general election. I mean, I feel like I have, you know, obviously hypotheticals are always hard to answer and a lot depends on what kind of president Bernie would have been. But I think I have a pretty, pretty good predictive model of where I would have been positioned and how I would have been conducting myself journalistically, which was in 2007, 
I didn't have a strong preference for Obama over Hillary in the Democratic primary, but I definitely felt like his ceiling was much higher, that he had a much greater chance to be this kind of exciting transformational candidate to really undermine ossified status quo institutions and ideologies in a way that Hillary would never dream of doing. And and so I definitely favored Obama and had kind of high hopes for his presidency, especially from the perspective of civil liberties, which at the time especially was my overwhelming focus from, you know, the war on terror. And I remember in early 2009, even, this is kind of a indication of how hopeful I was about the Obama presidency. Charlie Savage, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at the New York Times, started writing articles in like February of 2009. So like a month after uh, Obama was inaugurated saying that surprisingly, Obama seems to be continuing many of the most controversial Bush-Cheney war and terror policies, which during the campaign he had vowed to reverse. And I actually wrote an article defending Obama and saying that I thought that that conclusion, that denunciation was premature. And then I think like four or five months later, once it got worse and worse and worse, I went back and said, you know what, Charlie Savage was right. Yeah back in February, um, and then devoted myself, you know, for the next eight years, but especially that first term when it was much harder because Obama, the illusion about Obama was still very strong to opposing the Obama administration from, I guess, what you could call the left, although I never saw it that way, but, you know, from like the perspective of all these things that liberals were criticizing Bush and Cheney for doing with the war on terror, with corporations, with, you know, economic policy with everything else, basically, um, he hasn't changed very much at all. And in some cases, he's actually worsened some of those things. And I think that that would probably be the role that I would have played in the Bernie Sanders presidency as well. My guess is, you know, the dreams that people had about what that looked like would be unrealized by the kind of, you know, mechanisms in Washington that exist to prevent serious change that also stop Trump from doing a lot of the stuff that he probably would have done. And so I think you probably would have been a journalistically critical posture toward a Sanders presidency as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you talk about that. The, the It's one of my, it's sort of this revisionist history. And I do wonder if, obviously the press loved Obama, but I wonder if it wasn't Donald Trump, if it was literally anyone else that came after Obama, if we would have had the same sort of revisionist history. I remember the James Risen piece in the New York Times, if Donald Trump targets journalists, thank Obama going through his massive crackdown on uh, whistleblowers, on journalists and journalism sources that really just gets memory hold at this point. I mean, you know, it, it's I, I don't think I, I've been critical of Trump for, you know, calling the press fake news and the enemy of the people. I think those are bad things to say. But what, what the Obama administration actually did to journalism and journalism sources seems far worse. I mean, absolutely. You know, look, I've, I'm, I'm a journalist who has experienced both you know, harsh insults coming from political leaders, not just in the United States, but other countries as well, obviously, including Brazil. And I've also experienced like actual official persecution. And I can tell you that the latter is a much, much greater impediment to press freedom than the former. In fact, I don't even really regard the former as an attack on press freedom. Um, as unpleasant as it often can be, for me, it's just kind of part of the job. You're supposed to have an adversarial relationship to people in power, which means not only aren't you, are you going to do things to impede them, they're probably not going to like you. And that's just part of the relationship, even though maybe rhetorically things can go too far. I don't consider those attacks on press freedom. Right. And it, there are two great ironies of the narrative about Trump and an attack on press freedom. Remember the Washington Post very flamboyantly adopted a new motto, right? In the yeah. Trump era, democracy dies in darkness, implying that Trump was some kind of like grave threat to press freedom. The two ironies are 
from a perspective of press freedom, Obama was infinitely worse than Trump because he not only prosecuted huge numbers of whistleblowers, his Justice Department authorized trolling through phone records of Fox News and AP. Obviously, I regard the persecution of Edward Snowden, my source that helped when, you know, outlets Pulitzers and, yeah. you know, produced groundbreaking journalism to be an attack on press freedom. Um, and there were very few journalists calling that out. Um, James Risen did because they wanted to actually put him in jail. But, you know, Jake Tapper had me on a lot to talk about it and other people. He was actually really good. But for the most part, that kind of got ignored. Um, and that was one irony is that, you know, a lot whatever Trump did in the realm of press freedom, Obama pioneered and did worse. And then the second aspect of it is there is one thing I think Trump did that was a genuine threat to press freedom which was the one thing that the journal that media that, that most journalists seem either indifferent towards or supportive of which is the indictment of Julian Assange right under theories that virtually every press group around the world has warned is a constitutes a grave attack on press freedom so it is amazing to me that the media if you know Trump posted some adolescent insult about Wolf Blitzer or Chuck Todd or whatever would have a week's worth of hysteria about press freedom being under attack. And yet all the stuff that Obama did that was far more menacing and concrete, they didn't really care much about it all and don't even remember if they even ever noticed at all. And then the one thing that Trump did that could actually pose a real threat to press freedom if it succeeds, which Biden, of course, is now following the prosecution of Assange, is something that mostly for personal and emotional reasons, they just doesn't bother them at all. Yeah, yeah. You talk about the, the, the uh, Obama, I uh, used the Espionage Act against uh, journalists and journalism sources more than all other administrations combined. And that, that still holds after Trump, which used it uh, twice, right. both uh, Assange, as you mentioned, which is sort of a continuation of Obama. And then uh, with Reality Winner uh, was another, you know, sort of a side story. I want to ask you, though, because uh, I, I was curious about kind of the hypothetical with MSNBC because of kind of where the your career trajectory is gone. I want to talk about Substack and some of those things, but but also there's this hilarious and insane piece out in the Daily Beast. Uh, is Glenn Greenwald the new master of right wing media? <laughs> and you know, I read it and I know I know you laugh about it, and I I can laugh about it. Although I don't think the people writing it think it's it's very funny at all. I mean, they're very serious about it, and uh, you know, and actually the 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 current. Uh, editor of The Intercept, Betsy Reed, went on record, which got to actually kind of respect the chutzpah to go on the record with this bullshit. But but he she says he's become a practitioner of manufactured controversy in the service of the hard right in this country. Um, it, the there's something just I, I almost I almost feel bad about the way that you seem to get under the skin of certain people who who theoretically have millions of followers in some cases, have a lots of good things going on in their life, but they're very, very outraged by you appearing on Fox News once or twice, you know, or something. It's just, it's very strange. What do you think it is psych psychologically, but also kind of journalistically that's happened here? Well, so I'll be honest, like, you know, I, I was alluding before to the the oddity of the of the media not objecting to the prosecution of Julian Assange. But it's actually more than that. Like they actually, overwhelmingly, they all hate Julian Assange, which is a very strange thing if you think about it in one sense, which is that Julian has pioneered journalism in the digital age and in the process has broken more huge stories than almost all of them combined. Right. So you would think the people who value journalism and value transparency would revere Julian. But 
they don't, they hate him. And in part, it's because he has a polarizing personality, which is, you know, an, abra- an, an abrasive personality, which is also part of why he was able to do what he he did. But I think there's a lot of professional jealousy there over the fact that, you know, he never had to enter these constraining institutions or answer to bosses or, you know, have newsrooms telling him what he can and can't say. And despite not joining those institutions that they regard as the kind of monopolist of journalistic legitimacy, he still has accomplished more in the way of reporting than they would in a hundred lifetimes. And I think they see him as like this mirror that he holds up showing them their deficiencies. And I think part of that explains why so many of them dislike me. You know, I am self-aware enough to know that I am not always the most harmonious or like (laughs) peace spreading person. I do have a combative personality. I'm sometimes acerbic in the way I conduct myself. That is something that can generate, you know, more hostility than maybe a different kind of personality. Although like I, with Julian, I think those personality traits of mine help explain why I've been able to succeed the way that I've done journalism. But I think part of it is jealousy, you know, that I was able to do such significant stories, never being part of their club. Um, You know, there was an Oscar-winning film made about my work. There was a studio film made by Oliver Stone where I was played by a famous actor, you know, books and just always being able to like have a lot of independence and still succeed by breaking their rules. I think that produces a lot of professional anger and jealousy and resentment. But then I also, you know, have always, you know, from the first time that I began writing about politics in 2005, I didn't set out to write about journalistic outlets or media culture, but I realized very early on that in order to accomplish anything in terms of political discourse or journalistic, you know, narrative battling, you can't ignore media outlets. They're, they're, they're like every other powerful institution, like Wall Street or Silicon Valley or the CIA or the Pentagon. It's your job as a journalist to scrutinize and hold accountable powerful institutions. And what I quickly learned was that certainly includes media corporations. And so I've always had very harsh words for corporate media culture. I write about specific individuals in very critical ways. I try not to be personal about it, to confine myself to the journalistic critique. But, you know, I write harshly and acerbically, and that creates a lot of bad feelings as well. So I think, and then finally, like I would also just say, you know, in general, heretics to a religion are hated more than people who never belonged or heretics to a cult, same thing. And so I think there's a lot of anger right now in kind of liberal media circles that they thought, even though I only had one foot in their world, I at least had one foot in there and I was kind of on their side. And now there's a perception that I turned against them. And that generates a lot more hatred and betrayal and resentment than say of someone they always perceived as being against them, like Laura Ingram or Megyn Kelly or Tucker you know, go on air and denounce them. It just produces a different reaction. Yeah, well, no, I think that's totally it. I mean, I, this, I agree. I think there's definitely some jealousy there. Although although even the, even the people you mentioned, I think you, the Laura Ingram and the Sean Hannity's they don't really care that much about. But but a Tucker, who was at CNN, MSNBC, or or even a Megyn Kelly, who was at NBC. I mean, and then of course, of course, you. I mean, th- there is this real sense of like. Totally. Like these people are convincing of people who are independents and who maybe are on the other side in ways that the hard right are not. And that makes them very dangerous to these people. Coming up, the state of CNN and MSNBC and why Glenn, a former regular guest of both those networks, has only been on Fox News in recent years. But first, the latest episode in guilt journalism. 
where the media rushes in to compete over who could repent the loudest for their real and perceived sins. Today on Naomi Osaka, the star tennis player who made 50 plus million dollars last year, who quit the French Open because she didn't want to participate in any press conferences, because she didn't want to field negative questions that she says were bad for her mental health. She was fined $15,000 and then withdrew completely. The most impressive example of media self-flagellation was from Jonathan Liu of The Guardian, who wrote a column literally headlined, We're not the good guys, speaking of the press. His tweet, which was shared positively by the masochistic media, said the problem is not Naomi Osaka, the problem is press conferences. The column takes aim at the press conference overall, apparently a relic of another era of journalism that is now literal violence. Quote, the modern press conference is no longer a meaningful exchange, but really a lowest common denominator transaction. A cynical and often predatory game in which the object is to mine as much content from the subject as possible. Gossip, good. Anger, good. Feuds, good. Tears, good. Personal tragedy, good. Meanwhile, the young athlete, often still caught up in the emotions of victory or defeat, is expected to answer the most intimate questions in the least intimate setting, in front of an array of strangers and backed by a piece of sponsored cardboard. In attempting to bolster his argument, Lou had to go back nearly two full decades to come up with a total of two examples of sexist and offensive questions posed to female tennis stars. He laments how Osaka and other professional athletes are, quote, forced to sit in a windowless room explaining herself to a room full of middle-aged men. Such heroism. And he concludes, we are not the good guys here. We are no longer the power, and one of the world's best athletes would literally rather quit a Grand Slam tournament than have to talk to the press. Rather than scrutinizing what that says about her, it might be worth asking what that says about us. Osaka quitting says nothing about the press. Multiple things can be true at the same time. If Osaka had suffered from depression for years, that's very sad and it's serious. But her original argument was that she didn't want to face negative questions from the media. That's part of the gig. If you don't want to face scrutiny from the media, perhaps you should just play a leisurely game of tennis with some friends for no money and no one in the media will think twice. Undoubtedly, some media members are lousy. Some in that room are looking to create some viral moment, or perhaps worse, are so disengaged they don't even think twice about the effect their questioning has on the subject. But the vast majority of those in the media are there to simply do a job, just like Osaka. They shouldn't be smeared by a media so continually eager in 2021 to practice guilt journalism as a signal of their cultural piety. More with Glenn Greenwald coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Glenn Greenwald. In preparation for this, I was doing some, you know, I was looking around at some of your appearances on, on MSNBC. You used to be a real regular on Chris Hayes' show. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you oh. know, I, I just, let me, let me play just an example. This is something from 2016, uh, you know, not not that long ago, of, of one of your, uh, a short clip of one of your appearances on Chris's show. And it seems like the press has a different role to play because it feels like there's an alley-oop being set up in which the press puts the ball through the hoop to achieve the aim of an actor who is up to something that is nefarious. 
Right. I mean, I think the, the reason why this is a hard thing to think about is because there are two really profoundly important values. On the one hand, the need to impose transparency on powerful actors, which certainly includes people like John Podesta and Hillary Clinton, and arguably even people like high-level Sony officials. And on the other hand, the need to protect individual privacy. Yeah. So, and again, this is this is almost at the end of before Trump was elected, although you were on there certainly after Trump was elected as well. And these were not necessarily like Glenn Greenwald is agreeing with Chris Hayes or Glenn Greenwald's agreeing with Ari Melber. I mean, there were and, and it, it calls to mind that there's we've seen the shift in cable news, not just of the fact that you're only getting on book, booked on Fox now, even though you're certainly not a Fox contributor, you but but you and not on CNN or MSNBC anymore. Um, so there's that. But also, we don't just see a lot of challenging, but okay, we can all go home and, and have a beer or, 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 you know, go up the air and it's, everything's okay. There's just not that much of that anymore on those cable networks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I look, I was never a kind of standard issue, classical liberal, or even leftist. I always had heretical positions. I supported Citizens United. I've always been much, you know, more in favor of free speech values from kind of like an old school ACLU perspective than was popular on the liberal left. I was defending in 2016, the publication of those WikiLeaks emails was obviously an early opponent of Russiagate, but you know, all along the way, I was much more critical of Obama than most people on the left were. And yet like they could kind of still tolerate that. So even when I would go on MSNBC or CNN, it would often be adversarial. It wasn't like I would just go on and like do head nodding episodes. I mean, the thing you just played, there was some tension there. Chris was kind of arguing that there was a privacy value being infringed by the publication of the Podesta and DNC emails. And I was defending journalistic coverage of it. So there was like an oppositional interaction there. What really happened, you know, and again, it's it's really the Trump era. You know, I think the last time I was on MSNBC was in December of 2016. So before Trump was inaugurated and I went on to argue with Ari Melber about why more skepticism was necessary about the Russiagate collusion narrative. And that was the last time I was on. I think that was right around when CNN stopped inviting me on as well. And it wasn't just me, Steve. It was like Matt Taibbi hasn't been on since then. Jeremy Scahill was was not on because he wasn't on board with the rush. It was almost everybody, especially on perceived as on being on that side, who became a dissident to those prevailing themes. Just they didn't want to hear dissent. And one of the really interesting things is, you know, I have expressed criticism of everyone on Fox, including Tucker, um, including to his baseball publicly and privately. But the first time I ever saw Tucker's show, I'm pretty sure, maybe it was the first time I was on. I think it was the first time I saw it, though. He invited on Adam Schiff in like late 2016 or early 2017 onto the set. <laughs> and they sat there for 12 minutes arguing about Russiagate. What evidence do you have for collusion? What evidence do you have for this? It was like a spirited and kind of a vituperative exchange, but it was still very substantive. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that you just don't ever see on MSNBC or CNN anymore. As you said, like they used to even put on kind of artificial, superficial, here's a Republican consultant, here's a Democratic consultant. Now they're going to go at it for five minutes. It wasn't very nutritious, right. but at least they would air that. They basically don't do that anymore. It's just like those two networks in particular are very homogenized in terms of the viewpoints they allow. Yeah. I mean, I remember Tucker going at it with John Bolton. Uh, this was only a couple of years ago. This was certainly during the Trump era. Um, we, you just don't see these kind of substantive debates. As you mentioned, you get the punditry instead. Um, all right. Last thing on this, and then I want to go to the next thing. But do you, but it is sort of this bizarre place we're in. I had, I had Ari Fleischer on this podcast uh, a month or two ago, and he mentioned you specifically as someone who he has this great respect for because of your honesty. You know, you know, we disagree on some things. It's like you disagree on some things. <laughs> Ari Fleischer is literally 
really, you know, asking people to go subscribe to your Substack. Uh, do you, are you at least a little bit surprised, though, by some on the right who have become sort of defenders of that, you know, that intellectual honesty? I mean, you know, I, this is, it's interesting when I, you know, kind of from the beginning when I started writing, I never considered myself either a partisan or an ideologue. I got described very early on as being like a leftist or a far leftist because overwhelmingly 90% of the time it was criticizing George Bush and Dick Cheney and who was ever doing, you know, especially on the war in terror and whoever was doing that was automatically assumed to be a leftist. Right. But even back then, I always had these visions of, building bridges to allies and supporters who were put into a different camp. So I think like when I wrote my first book, I went and presented it at the Cato Institute. I worked with the Cato Institute on a couple of reports that I did with them. I had a good relationship with Ron Paul and his movement and the kind of libertarian movement because there was obviously a lot of convergence on things like the drug war and the war on terror and civil liberties. So I've always, you know, and, and even the Snowden reporting a lot of people remember that as kind of a popular among the left cause, but in reality, at least half of the support that Snowden got, that I got, came from the right, from that kind of strain of, you know, limited government, pro-privacy rights. Right. Obviously, some of that was opportunistic because it was under Obama, and so a lot of Democrats hated us for it just because of that reason the Republicans liked it. But there was also, well, it was very ideologically scrambled, and I've always enjoyed scrambling ideological categories because they do think oftentimes they obfuscate so much more than they illuminate and they prevent people who have views in common from working together. So, you know, but if you say it to me, is it a surprise? Like if you had told me seven years ago that Ari Fleischer would be praising me as like somebody that he has a lot of respect for, or that I would be like, I don't know, one of the most frequent guests on, you know, Fox, if not the most frequent at this point, or at least frequently asked on, I would say, yeah, that would surprise me. But now having gone through it, I think it makes sense. You know, I think the liberal media in a lot of ways lost its mind, lost its ethical compass. And, you know, the dominant story of the Trump era, as humiliating as this should be, was Russiagate. And journalistically speaking, I just always found it repellent, you know, and so did Matt Taibbi and so did other people with whom I had a kind of long relationship. And we kind of formed this new ideological faction um, of which I think people even like Megyn Kelly and Andrew Sullivan are a part as well. You know, people who just aren't fixed and don't want to be fixed in or captive to a particular ideological dogma or political faction. Yeah. Um, and so I think it makes sense in the scheme of things. Great. I don't even think Tucker, as you were just saying, is the same kind of right wing commentator as, say, Sean Hannity. I think it's much more, he's much more heterodox than that. So, you know, I think this new kind of framework has arisen and my role in it makes sense, even if I would have been shocked by it six years ago, if you had showed it to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I'm certainly, uh, I, I would count myself as part of that group. I'm, I'm a fan of that also. And I, and I think that's honestly how most of the country is. Uh, I, I don't think that they're, yeah. they're easily fit into these boxes in the way that, that maybe, uh, you know, cable news punditry would like us to, to do. Um, but in the spirit of that, I want to bring up one point with you that I, that I, I think I disagree with you on, and I want to push on it because you and I had a little back and forth on Twitter uh, over, I think it was you were, quote, retweeting uh, a, a, an intern, or maybe she was a, a 
you know, a, a new journalist at USA Today and she wrote something terrible and she tweeted about it. And then you re- quote retweeted and it became a big story. And I, I guess my I guess my question is more on Twitter, um, because you read your your Substack, which I want to ask you about next. And it's so substantive and lengthy and well-researched. And then with but Twitter is is built not for that, right? It is completely the opposite of it. And and I wonder what you think about the sort of the fruitlessness of arguing or or engaging at all with people on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Twitter is a valuable tool and it's virtually indispensable if you want to have a voice that makes a difference in politics and journalism. Disappearing yourself from Twitter, you know, will go a long way to disappearing yourself, period. There are very few people who can do it. Ta-Nehisi Coates did it. Um, but, you know, even he has kind of like faded a little bit from yeah. the day-to-day political debate, which I think he wanted, but he, it did. It did. Um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that he's one of the most popular and influential writers in the country. So it's kind of a necessary evil. But I also think that it brings out the worst in everybody, not just me. And, you know, I look every single year, if you asked me at the start of the year, what is my New Year's resolution and what is my primary therapeutic goal for the year? It would be, you know, reduce my Twitter usage, radically change the way I use Twitter, stop arguing with people endlessly, like it's pointless at best and, you know, probably like degrading of my own credibility at worst, It like waste time, it makes it enables your comments to be taken out of context. You look petty and vindictive when you're doing it. You know, so I'm very aware of all of that. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, when it's, it's, it is interesting. Like when I, you know, one of you remember when I got my start in journalism, it was by, it wasn't by going to work at the New York times or, you know, covering like zoning board hearings for the Los Angeles times. I just started a blog one day. And at the time in 2005, blogs were driven by community, by the community of readers that you had who resided in the comment sections of your articles. And the comment sections of my articles were very rich. You know, they would be like people making objections, voicing objections to things I had said, pointing out other evidence yeah. that might it, contradict things it I was, had it said. It was a rare location at- for like suggesting people read the comments. <laughs> I read, I not only did I read the comments, you know, I interacted with my readers every day. And like, sometimes some of the most important stories that I did came from, you know, my readers saying, Hey, I just saw this interview on TV. Like so-and-so said this, but this is a lie. And then I'd write about it the next day and it would go viral. It was a great resource. And I thought, you know, I always thought that like one of the benefits of digital journalism, as opposed to sort of, you know, the prior model of, you know, newspaper people speaking from mountaintop down to their flock and never hearing from them was that kind of dialogue. And not just dialogue with like famous other journalists, but with just like ordinary people who could hold you accountable by telling you why your argument was wrong. And I, you know, I think part of what I do on Twitter is the same kind of like reflexive addiction that other people fall prey to. So I don't want to like make it more noble than it is. But part of it is that impulse that... I don't want to just be in this elitist bubble of only talking to other journalists or ignoring all criticisms because I can. I think one of the values of internet journalism is that you have to answer to the people who you're affecting. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, 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 I try to use it sometimes with my newsletter as sort of this workshopping, you know, and, and I know if you do it that way, sometimes things are not going to totally work perfectly. Um, but that's also what I tell myself when I, instead of saying I'm addicted to Twitter and it's bad for me. But, right, uh, we all have rationalizations <laughs> right. to make it more noble. The fourth watch lightning round is coming up, but first we talk the success of Substack and Edward Snowden and whether Glenn expected a Trump pardon. Let me ask you about your Substack because, you know, by all accounts, you're absolutely crushing it right now. And I, and I think one of the things that really stood out to me with yours was outside voices, which, which seemed like a real game changer to it. Because it's not just Glenn Greenwald building a media brand solely around Glenn Greenwald, but being, you know, sort of, lack of a better term, a new gatekeeper in a way, or at least a, a way of propping up uh, other voices as well. And that seems like it could really change the media game if that starts growing. How has that transition been to Substack? And, and where do you see it? going in the future yeah i think it's super promising um you know it's interesting um if you go to substack and you don't seek or receive an advanced or a guaranteed salary which is my case i didn't get a, a, a an advanced or a guaranteed salary they don't really provide that much for you especially given what you're giving them which is 10 percent of your subscription earnings which is a lot right you know, they're providing you basically a platform, like a kind of program to publish. And it's a good program, but, you know, you can pretty much find that anywhere else. And it will, you know, instead of paying 10% of your subscriptions, you would pay like a 1% or a half a percent. And I get all asked all the time, like, why don't, why don't you just go to one of those platforms and save that 10%? And my answer is because I think Substack Kind of to my surprise, it wasn't something I anticipated when I went there, has become a cause, a political and journalistic cause, as much as it is a platform. And this cause, not for everybody who's there, obviously, but for a lot of people, is the ability to forge a new way of doing journalism where people are emancipated from the constraints of media corporations, where you can earn not just a good living, but enough money to start enabling others to do that. And, you know, before I left The Intercept so abruptly in October of 2020, I had spent, I don't know, probably like six months, but it really intensified after the George Floyd killing and that protest movement that ensued and the change of the climate that it that accompanied it. I had been exploring the idea of finding financing for a new media outlet with the intention of getting everybody together who's kind of in that faction that I just described and then also finding new talent. Right. So making sure that if you're 21 and you want to enter journalism, you don't have to go to work for Vox or like, you know, confine yourself to saying things that will let you get hired at the Washington Post. Like we wanted to create a new path to let people enter the profession already free instead of getting contaminated. And, you know, it, I think the success, in, in, in an ironic way, the success of Substack made it harder or the success of Patreon made it harder because you say to Megyn Kelly or Matt Taibbi, or Andrew Sullivan, hey, why don't you leave what you're doing and come join this new organization? And they're like, are you fucking crazy? I never thought I would have it this good in my life. Right, like yeah. I'm totally free. I have a huge audience. I'm making tons of money. And so what we started realizing was the success of Substack enabled us to kind of work backwards so that, you know, now we are starting to form kind of informal coalitions with the people that we wanted to work with in the first place. And we're, I, you know, I have a really you know, vibrant freelance program where I can publish people who can't get published elsewhere because their content's inhospitable to those orthodoxies. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot more of that kind of growth because people, pe now that Trump's out of the way, more or less, 
and he's not taking up all the oxygen, people see that the real power center in the United States is this kind of unholy merger between mainstream media outlets, the kind of MSNBC, CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, Axis, the Democratic Party, Wall Street, and Silicon Valley. And people want a buffer or a kind of counter against that that isn't necessarily just MAGA. And I think that a lot of people with a lot of resources and a lot of people who don't fit either in the MAGA world or certainly in that world are looking for ways to strengthen the ability to create that. And I think Substack is going to be kind of a, an epicenter for that in a way that will, you know, enable us to do a lot more than we're currently doing. Yeah. And you know, Doug mentioned sort of a post-Trump era seems way more better positioned than the large, you know, clunky legacy media outlets that have built their, you know, their their business model on Trump. Uh, so that's 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 definitely a uh, something to make it you know stand out there. Um, all right. Last thing before uh, we get to the lightning round here, I want to ask you about Edward Snowden. We talked about him. A I'm very times. nervous for the lightning round. Oh, no. It's, it's very hard to uh, be evasive. You promise it's going to be safe and good. I think it's safe and good. And, you know, it's, it's we, we try to say six questions in 60 seconds, but I, I don't hold you to the there's not a, there's no timer countdown. So so okay. you know, take your time. All right. Um, no, but before we get to that. All right, so I'll calm myself. I'll calm myself. Thank you for those reassuring words. So, yeah, before know, we get to the lightning round. Podcasts are chill. We're, we're supposed to be just, you know, this right. is, uh, uh, let right. me ask you about, about Edward Snowden because I I actually say I I was a li- I was predicting that Donald Trump was going to pardon Snowden uh, as one of his last acts in in, in office in uh, late January. That was not to be. Were you a little surprised, disappointed, and do you think he has a chance? I guess in this new era, with new administration. I think he has no chance zero uh, in the Biden administration. I mean, Biden was the one who led the way in persecuting Snowden back in 2013 and 2014. He was the one who called Ecuador and Cuba and Bolivia and said, if you give him asylum or you consider letting him have safe passage on his way to asylum, you're going to suffer the full weight of the United States government. You probably recall the first time Trump ever floated the idea of pardoning Snowden at a press conference. Susan Rice was, you know, she used her like eighth grade MySpace jargon to say, you know, something like, oh my God, or whatever, something like that. Oh my God, with the period after each word. Um, so no, there's a huge amount of hostility to to Snowden in the Biden world because it was the Obama administration that was traumatized by those revelations. I think, you know, I obviously did a lot of work and I was open about this, you know, especially in say the last half of 2020 to persuade people who had influence in the Trump White House to make the case for a pardon. There were powerful people doing that, who meaning powerful in the sense that Trump listened to them and trusted them. I went on Fox several times and kind of did that speaking directly to Trump thing, but I made the case both for Snowden and, and, and Assange. And I was getting favorable indications. I, I actually, I can't say for sure, obviously, but I believe that what happened was once the January 6th riot happened and it became clear that the Democrats were going to impeach Trump again and his fate was in the hands of Republicans who, you know, are still the same Republicans from the war on terror. They hate mass leakers. They they hate WikiLeaks. They hate Snowden. And they were horrified at the idea of a lot of things Trump might have done on his way out, not just pardon Snowden and Assange, but I'll, and I think the pardon of Snowden was much more probable, but even declassify a bunch of documents about the JFK killing, which right. never happened. Um, I think they clearly held over his head 
this kind of sword that said, look, if you do things on the way out that really offend us and that we feel harmful are harmful to the country, there's a good chance you're going to end up convicted, not acquitted. And I think that made whatever possibility there was of pardoning Snowden, which I think was non-trivial, maybe even greater than 50%, it basically destroyed that possibility. Wow. Interesting. Uh, all right, Glenn, last thing. Six questions, 60 seconds. Where were you born? In Queens. You're the founder of your own Substack publication. What is one benefit and one cost of that job? I would say the benefit is being able to answer to nobody other than your own readers, which keeps you honest. I'd say the cost is there are times when having a big institution behind you or a big team is helpful to journalism. And right now, at least, my team is small. All right. Uh, who is someone who's been a mentor for you? I would say the biggest influence on me has been Noam Chomsky. And I suppose you could say he's a mentor, obviously not in a journalistic sense because he hasn't been a journalist, but just in the in terms of how you conduct yourself as somebody with a public platform. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Um, I really like um, Andrew Sullivan personally and even professionally. We fought a lot in public, um, so people get surprised by that, but... For me, as like a gay man, the fact that he played such a vital role in bringing about marriage equality and fighting for it in the 80s and then doing so much to live as an openly HIV positive um, gay man at a time when very few public figures were brave enough to do that means that despite all of his huge personal and political flaws of which I'm all aware, he has accomplished more than most of his haters combined ever will. And ultimately I value what people do to change the world for the good more than I value how much I love all their opinions. Yeah. Uh, people, 1989 conservative case for gay marriage, such an incredible story. <laughs> yeah. Sort of yep. uh, who is one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Oh, God, I'm, I don't know. I have to think about that. I mean, you know, I still think there are really good journalists at The Intercept. I mean, like Lee Fong is one of my favorite journalists. And I actually think that his controversial opinions about various things like crime and race often obscure what a great journalist, like an investigative journalist, he actually is. I mean, he gets a little bit of attention, but I don't think he gets the amount of praise and support that he deserves for the unique journalism he does. Nice. All right. Last thing. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? I think that uh, a lot of cable hosts who became very popular as mainstays uh, and, and host of programs are no longer going to be on television. Leave it open in there. Glenn, thanks so much. Maybe that's time. more of a hope than a prediction, but <laughs> right. that's my prediction. Right. I did not <laughs> All right, shocking. Steve. Great talking to you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Glenn Greenwald. Go subscribe to his Substack. I guess you could follow him on Twitter also, but, you know, better on Substack. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. You can subscribe for free now at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download this podcast and subscribe and follow, like, rate, review, 
wherever you get your podcasts as well. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Next episode with Fox News host, former reality TV star Rachel Campos Duffy. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.